Today we're getting back to the book of James. We took a little detour for the month of May with our missions emphasis. Um, hey, last Sunday we ended with Teen Challenge. Our missions emphasis. Was that not the most miraculous service? And so many of you brought people, as we said, it was a service of hope. And you brought people who needed hope, and lives were touched last week. It was, the, I think, the best Teen Challenge service I've ever been in in my life. Just the presence of the Spirit was real. And uh, what great stories of deliverance. And so, um, so we took a month break from our study of James, and the idea is we're going to be done with the book of James right about the end of summer. And so we're kind of winding down. We're coming to the last chapters here. And so let's remember a little bit, because it took a month break, what the book of James is about, or at least who wrote it. It's written by a guy named James. Who's who? Who's James? The, the half-brother of Jesus. You know, so I think I want to listen to this guy. He lived with Jesus. You know, he says, brother, funny thing is, he didn't believe Jesus, anything was true about Jesus until Jesus died and rose again. He was one that mocked Jesus, it says in scripture, um, said, oh, why don't you go to the, why don't you go to the festival since you want to be a superstar? James, James didn't get it until he saw his brother dead and alive. That'll convince you, right? And so, um, James wrote this, a half-brother of Jesus, after he comes to understand his brother is the Messiah, um, he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And there's something interesting. James and, and Jesus, their personalities are a lot different. We think of Jesus kind of carrying lambs around, petting them, talking to children. That's not really what Jesus is like. Jesus was, was bold and filled with courage and love and compassion, but also just tenaciousness. Um, but James, he's a kind of in-your-face guy. He's a lot like the Apostle Paul that way. He's just in-your-face kind of guy. No dancing around the issues with James. Um, he, from a heart of love, in the writing in this book, hits issues head-on that he sees as issues or struggles for those who are followers of Jesus. He's writing to Christian people. And he's saying, listen, there's some things going on that are bad for you. I want to address these things. Because of love, he says hard things. Um, and he, he points out errors and says, listen, you guys aren't doing this right to the church he's writing to, the churches he's writing to, but also to us. Now, the text that we're going to look at today from James in chapter 4 is maybe the most in-your-face, and that's why I'm explaining it before we get to it, the most in-your-face teaching in the whole book of James. He doesn't pull any punches. He addresses something that he sees as very concerning to him in the life of some of the Christians that he's connected to and concerned for. And so let's turn your Bibles, open up to James. It ought to be opening all automatically to James by now. James chapter 4, we're just going to read two verses today. Now remember, this is about those in-your-faces James can get. For those of you who think that, you know, Christianity is for wusses, uh, this will show you that it's not. Christianity is for, for men's men and, is it a woman's woman? Is that, I've never heard that term, but for, for real people. So, James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, how do you like these first two words? You adulteresses. Now there, let's stop there. For all you people who think that everything is just kind and cushy all the time, and you think Jesus would never say anything mean or anything hard-hitting, how much more hard-hitting can you get this? He's writing to Christian people, and he says, you bunch of adulteresses. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. How do you like that? James 
looks at Christian people, not non-Christian people, church people, Assemblies of God people, Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists. He looks at Christian people and he says to them and maybe to us, only you know, you are a bunch of adulteresses. Now, is he talking here about physical adultery? He's not. Not at all. Not in the context of what he's writing in. He's not talking about, about physical adultery. He's not talking about someone sleeping with someone else's spouse. No. What he is, is he is dealing with something that's a lot harder to expose in ourselves and much easier to explain away. And we're masters at explaining away the truth about ourselves. He's talking about spiritual adultery, which is basically this. Saying that a person is a follower of Jesus, but then having devotions and affections that compromise that relationship. It's saying, because a Christian is basically this, someone who says, God, Jesus is number one in my life, but he's saying your lives say there's a whole bunch of other things, or maybe one other thing that's really number one, and Jesus really isn't number one in your life. And he calls that spiritual adultery. Now, for us to really understand this text, and I think we could really misunderstand this text, I think the place we need to start is we need to start with our understanding of God, who God really is, what God is really like. Start with how we picture God. If I say God, what image comes to your mind? What is God like? And then from that perspective, look at the text. This is really important here because our picture of God will determine how we understand everything, how we understand these verses and everything else. And and see, if you believe God to be angry and vengeful and condemning, then you'll interpret these verses one particular way. You will see a harsh God who demands loyalty and crushes those who get out of line with what he wants. But if you see God as good and loving and out for your good, God who is cheering you on and from a heart of love is warning you of dangers that could cause you great harm, then you will see these verses as a loving warning from a concerned father. When the truth is that in this very room, there are probably people with both views. Views that have been shaped not so much by Scripture, not so much by who Jesus is, but shaped by life itself, by our culture around us saying what God is like. Um, by our parents who modeled. People say when, when Scripture refers to God as a father, and instead of thinking of God as a father revealed in Scripture, you think of God as a father in your house. And so you think God is like your, your father. It's shaped by our culture. It's shaped by the effects, the effects of sin in our life. That sin affects us. It affects how we see the world. The, the damage that's been done to us because sin's committed against us. All these things can shape our view of God. So let's think about this morning. What do we know about the heart and the nature of God from Scripture? Well, there's a lot of things we know, but this is what I know is the overarching truth about God. That we see that God is good. That he loves people. That he loves people so much that he created this wonderful world for people. As a place to enjoy his creation and a place to be with him. Matter of fact, we look at the big picture, the whole reason God created mankind in the, in the first place is because he just wanted to create the world so he could be with them 
and bless humankind. And even when mankind rejected God and chose to sin, God still loved us and gave his own life on the cross in our place in order to set us free from sin and death and to restore our broken relationship with him. And when we look at Scripture and we understand the unfolding of Scripture, what we understand as we try to understand God is that we see the true nature of God when we see the true nature of God in the flesh, Jesus himself. The reason Jesus came to this earth, one of the main purposes, was to reveal the reality of God. Up until that time, there was sacrificial systems and people trying to understand God and getting it right and getting it wrong. But God came, and it was always his plan, to come into our very own world and say, this is what I'm like, because this is me. And Jesus lived among us. So we see the true nature of God when we see Jesus. Jesus himself said, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in Jesus, the scriptures tell us, dwells all the fullness of God. So when we understand Jesus, we understand God. And in Jesus, think of the stories. Think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we see, when Jesus, what do we see? We see love. We see forgiveness. We see grace. We see acceptance. We see second chances. We see long suffering. And we see correction. How would you like to be a Peter? When you're following after Jesus and, you, and you're saying, you're never going to die. And he looks at you, his follower, for three years and he says, get behind me, Satan. I don't want to be in that spot. But when we see Jesus, we see this grace-filled, accepting, long-suffering, even lovingly correcting God. Friends, that's what God is like because that is God. So when we come to a section of verses like the ones that we read in James today, we have to look at them through the lens of Jesus. You know, what can this mean in light of the fact that God is for me? That God loves me? That God wants the best for me? That God loves to pardon me? That God loves to forgive me? That God loves to encourage me and God wants the best for me? So let's look at these verses through that lens of Jesus today and see what could they possibly mean for us. And I think the best way that we can do this is to look at them in reverse order. Look at verse 5 first, and then verse 4. So look at verse 5 with me. Look what it says. It says, the scripture says, He jealously desires the spirit which is made to dwell in us. Let's remember what happens when a person comes to salvation in Jesus. When we come to Christ... We turn from our old life ruled by sin and self and we come to Jesus for forgiveness and new life. And when that happens, it's not just a decision. You didn't just make a decision in church one day. What happens is when you come to Jesus, he's been calling you, he's been pulling you by the Spirit and when you say yes to Jesus, something spiritual actually happens. That's why you say, how come I walked in feeling like I have weight on my back and I walk out and I feel like 10,000 pounds have been lifted off my back. My life was going this way, now it's going that way. That I looked at the world one way and now I look at the world differently. What happens? Something spiritual happens. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in, in, in Colossians 1. He says, he rescued us. He is Jesus. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Do you understand that's where you live without Christ? That's where you're born into every man and woman and child in this world. Little babies, as beautiful as Callie is, she was born in darkness. She needs to come to the light. She was born in darkness. 
He says he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That activity of rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ, is the activity of the Holy Spirit that Paul said, or that James says, the spirit that dwells within us. It's the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the active agent of the Trinity. He is the one accomplishing the spiritual activity in your life. He's the one that pulls you to you. He's the one who continues to help you become more like Jesus as you walk in partnership with him. And what we find James saying in verse 5 is, and we see throughout all the scripture, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just reside out there somewhere. He also resides in here. That's why we have spiritual gifts in operation when we'll yield to that. He operates in here. The Spirit, he says, which he has made to dwell in us. He says in the text we just read. So the Spirit of God dwells in you if you are a follower of Jesus. Think about that for a minute this morning. The Spirit of God actually dwells within you. You are no longer limited by your abilities. You're no longer defined by your disabilities. God dwells within you. The presence and the power of God is inside of you if you are a Christ follower. So if God, who is Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this perfect unity in diversity dwells within you, then you become unified with the Godhead. You become part and parcel of what God is doing in this idea of of loving unity and diversity. The bond that extends between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit now incorporates you. And the intention of salvation is bringing you into relationship with the Trinity. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he's bringing you into relationship with, with God, who is Trinity. Look at how Paul describes this. Grab your Bible. Turn a few chapters back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 19. Look what he says here. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so let's talk about people who know Jesus. You're in Christ. That's Paul's main way of describing the relationship. You don't have to be in Christ, but you can be in Christ when you say yes to Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. Look at what it says there. Who reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Look what it says there. It says, in Christ, what goes on when we come to Christ, the Spirit's in us, is we are reconciled to God. The intention of salvation is bringing you into relationship with God. It's reconciling a broken relationship. Now, friends, it's in this context that James says, God jealously desires the Spirit which he made to dwell in us. See, God is unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we are grafted into that, it's for the purpose of expanded unity. He is jealous for, or greatly desiring, it says, the unity with humanity. It's why he created us in the first place, to have fellowship with us, to be with us. That's God's desire. 
Now, why would God desire that? Does God have needs? Does God desire to be in unity with us because there's some lack in God? Somehow God is lonely without me? No, not at all. He desires to be with us in order simply to express his love. Because we know this from Scripture. God isn't just loving. What's it say in 1 John? God is love. Not that he loves. God is love. And his desire for us is to, be, is to express love to us. Now, I'm coming to understand this a little bit better than I understood it in the past. As I've entered the most wonderful stage of life so far, called grandpa stage. It's awesome. Today, you know what, in the past, I would have been in church and somebody's baby would have been squawking during worship and I would have, I would have had to tune it out a little bit. Today, Callie was just going off in the front row and I'm like, oh, it's the most beautiful worship in the world. <laughs> Shut up, everybody. I'm going to listen to Callie. And I'm like, she's singing. That's what I felt like. I'm like, the music going, and she's singing, you know, and she's seven months old. She is quite the prodigy after all. <laughs> See, here's the deal. I love Callie. I love to be with Callie. I love, matter of fact, they took Callie for a week out of state, and I wasn't happy about it last week. I love to make Callie happy. I love to buy Callie things. I want her to feel my love. But let's be honest about something with me and Callie. Now, when Suzanne walks in the room, Callie lights up like a torch. When I go up to Callie, she doesn't even smile. I'm like, come on, give me something, you know? And, and Sam, their kindness, oh, look, at she's smiling. She's like, no, she's not. She is gas, you know. But um, if I'm honest about my relationship with Callie, up to now, she does very little to express her love back to me. She poops. She spits up. Matter of fact, when my kids spit up on my clothes and they're younger, I'm like, ah, oh, I spit up on my clothes. Now I'm like, isn't that cool? Callie spit up on me. <laughs> Grandparents, you know what I'm talking about, right? She cries when she's hungry. The thing about Callie that's funny is she's the best baby I've ever seen. I might be biased, but she's the best baby I've ever seen. But that girl goes from zero to 100 in one second. She's perfectly happy, and then she's very unhappy one second later. That's all she does in her life. She does very little to express love back to anybody else, including me. For now, our relationship is pretty much about me wanting to express love toward that's pretty much what it's like. We all goo and gaw over her because we're trying to express love to her. Friends, that's how God looks at us times a million, times a hundred million. That's how God looks at us. He loves us and he wants the best for us for our, our own sake. He wants to keep us from error for our sake, not because we offend him. He's not a, he doesn't, we don't offend God. It's for our sake. He knows the best place for us. He knows the safest place for us. He knows the most blessed place for us is united with Him. His Spirit within us, united with Him. The expansion of that idea of the Godhead, including us somehow now, just for our sake. That's what verse 4 is all about. It's the warning of our Heavenly Father through His servant James. To some Christians who don't understand that the best place, the most secure place, the most blessed place is to be at the side of the Father, filled with the Spirit, walking in step with the Son. 
So verse 4 says, look at it. It says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Evidently, some of the folks that James is writing to had a false belief that life would be best lived coming to Jesus, saying, I'm a follower of Christ, but then going back into the world that they had been rescued out of, delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And they say, but we want to live in that world, but we're saying we're followers of Jesus. James wants them to understand what an error they are making, so he uses very strong language. He says that to say that we are Christians, but to live like the world, he says, is adultery. It's like being married to one person, but sleeping with another. What James was seeing was Christian people who were friends with the world. He's not saying you don't interact with people who don't know Jesus. Not saying that at all. He's saying you're friends with the system of the world, that they align themselves with the values and the activities of the world that's separated from Christ. Those things that originate in the heart of man without Christ, you're, you're aligning yourself with those things. World here refers to the realm of sin, which is controlled by Satan and is arranged against God. What James is really trying to point out is the disunity of it all. That is the opposite of what God intends for the beautiful life that he plans for humankind. Unity between himself and humanity. Christian people partnering with the world system that originates with Satan. It's adultery, he says. It's breaking the unity that God offers, which is a place of blessing. It's robbing God's people of the blessed life that God desires for his children. Now our human tendency at this point, once we start to grasp this idea, is to make a long list of do's and don'ts. Things that we're going to categorize as worldly, secular, and holy or spiritual. This long list. Things that could be categorized as, as worldly. For years the church has made this mistake. When Susanna was a girl... Christian people, because I wasn't raised that truly going, well, we went to church, but we weren't believers. But Suzanne raised a believer. Well, you couldn't go to, you couldn't go to a movie. You'd go to hell if you went to a movie. Well, today, we go to movie theaters and watch Christian movies and other movies. If you make a long list of do's and don'ts, where do you start the list and where do you stop the list? Here's the problem with this idea of list making. It doesn't work. Because here's why. I don't know someone else's heart. I don't know why someone else does what they do. But here's what I do know. I know that you know your heart. I'm not supposed to know your heart, but you know your heart. You know your heart. You know if what you do draws you closer to God. You know if what you do makes you more aware of His Spirit and His presence within you. Or if what you're participating in which is aligned with the world system, actually builds a barrier between you and God. You know the places that we go, the things that we do, what we watch, what we listen to, what we participate in, the goals of our lives. Do they enhance unity with God or do they diminish unity with God? Here's what I know as I 
wrap up this thinking about these verses. I want to live as close to the heart of God as possible. That's what communion is about. I want to live as close to the heart of God as possible. Don't you? So James looks at us and he says, listen, if you're going to align yourself with the things that are opposed to God, it's like being an adulterer. You're robbing yourself of the beauty of marriage. The most wonderful thing on the planet that God has given us to express love is the idea of a loving marriage. I can't speak for anybody else. But I have the most phenomenal marriage on the planet because of two people for us, two people fully devoted to Christ. And here's what I gain in the marriage that I don't gain anywhere else in the world. I don't gain it by being a grandpa, and I don't gain it by being a dad, and I don't gain it by being a pastor. I experience love and unity in ways and blessing in ways that nothing else created by God or on this world can give me. And I can destroy it in a second by compromising that and aligning with someone else. He's saying, listen, when you align with me, I'm trying to graft you in this idea of unity and trinity. I've got this blessing for you, this goodness for you. But he looks at church people and he goes, what are you doing? I'm offering this to you, but you're, you're trading it, you're sacrificing it so that you can participate in garbage. You're hurting yourself, you're ruining yourself. But you say, well, the world says it's valuable. Well, guess what? Live a few years in the world system and I have, and you figure it's empty and it's nothing. You just got to medicate more. You just got to try to achieve more because it gives you nothing but empty promises. But Jesus gives you life and life abundantly. So he says to a lady at the well, give me some water. She goes, you don't have a bucket. He said, if you would have asked me for this, I'd give you living water. You'd never thirst again. And he said, what's he talking about? The Spirit of God that dwells in you when you're in relationship with the Father. That sense of unity you now have because you're invited and you're involved somehow in that loving unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to live as close to the heart of God as possible because that's where the beautiful life is experienced. You know what I know then? I just may need to give up a few things that are keeping me from God's best. That's what James is getting at. He said, there might be a few things you got to get rid of, a few things you got to stop doing, a few places you got to stop going, because what they're not doing, he's not saying God's mad at you. He's saying, you're ruining yourself. It's no good. It's like committing adultery. You're ruining this beautiful marriage that I offered to you. You're wrecking it. He says, I've got something so much better. Maybe some things you need to give up. Some things you need to start doing. Maybe you need to, to make some changes starting today. Maybe there's some things you need to stop or maybe there's some things you need to start. What's God want for you? Because here's what I know. I don't know you. We need to live as close as possible with God who loves us enough to die for us. What do you need to repent of? Meaning turn direction from because it's damaging the unity that God longs to have with you, like the unity of a marriage, and you're damaging it. What do you need to give up? Or maybe today, and we talked about it during communion, you've never yet honestly given your life to Christ. Oh, you've done it in a way that says, yeah, 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 I just need, I just need a, 
uh, assurance that when I die, I'll go to the good place instead of the bad place. Friends, that's not what it's about. It's about understanding that God is real and he offered his life for you today and you can live in, in relationship with him now and he'll transform your life. He'll put a smile on your face that nothing else can give you. He says, don't trade that. Don't trade that in for something the world offers because it's empty and it's dead. That's what James is talking about here when he says it's adultery to partner with the world system because it robs you of the good and beautiful life that God has for you. And that's what I want for everyone in this place, that good life. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. Pray with me. Jesus, you're a good, good Father, and we love you. And Father, today we, we take these verses and we've done our best to understand them and we've, we've been involved in your presence this morning. Thank you, God, that you would operate by gifts of the Spirit here. We welcome that. We welcome that. Help us to understand how to experience your presence um, without being goofy. And thank you for that, that, that I think that's real and true in this place. And Father, we would ask that today you'd help us to see ourselves honestly. You'd help us to see ourselves or who we are. God, I don't want to fool myself. We don't want to be like adulterers who are compromising a relationship because we believe something that's false. And God, I ask this, if we believe something that's false, that we really believe there's ways to go that are contrary to you and the world's told us that and we don't know any better, God, would you open up our eyes to the truth? Would you break the power of lies in our hearts and our minds and our, in our, in our lives today so that we live in the reality of the goodness of God, that we walk from this place today in the reality of the goodness of God. Now, God, you know every person in this place. And I ask this, God, speak to our hearts. If there are things that, that, we, that we join ourselves with, we participate in, that we, that we are doing that really compromise our relationship with you, and maybe we don't even know it, would you just show us that this morning? Out of love, would you show us it this morning so that we can see it and we can repent of it, we can change direction and say, I don't want that anymore. I want what's best. So God, if we believe lies today, I pray in Jesus' name, you would break the lies and we'd, we'd, and we'd see the truth. Now as we're in prayer this morning and closing these last moments, maybe you're here today, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, just having a private moment. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Mark, as I think about this this morning, I know this. I really don't know Jesus. I really, I really don't. And I need to. I want to. In the depths of my soul, I want to. And I want to open up my life to Jesus today and invite him into my life. If that's you, I want you to do something as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, and I'm going to start on my left in the sanctuary. I'm going to ask you this. If that's you today, I want you to look at me right in the eye. When I see you looking at me, because no one's looking around, I'll acknowledge you, and then I'll move on. So starting on this side of the sanctuary, say, yes, Pastor Mark, I, want to, I need to ask you in my life, and into the center. Say, yes, Pastor Mark. Okay? Anybody else? Yes, Pastor Mark. It's not to me. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you, I promise you. I want to do something this morning for those of you who said yes. 
I'm going to invite our whole church. We're going to just pray a simple prayer together. I'm going to invite the whole church. And if you looked at me this morning, I want you to pray along. And let's welcome, let's give our lives to Christ this morning. So pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for opening up my eyes. I know that I need you. And today, I respond to your call. I'm saying yes to you. And I'm asking you, Lord, change my thinking. Open up my mind to understand what a life lived with you is all about. So on this day, I ask you to become my Lord. I ask you to become my Savior. I ask you to wipe away all the junk from my life and to make me a brand new person. Fill me with your Spirit as I say yes to you. So on this day, I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus.